Yevdokia Bershanskaya, who we like to call Doc. She was brought in by Marina as her second in command. She helped helm, train, and mother the girls into the most successful fighter pilots of the war. She was in charge of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, and when the commander of the Air Squadron personally forbade commanders to fly combat missions, she secretly flew 40 missions. Early Life When she was 17, she was bitten by the flying bug and trained to be a flying instructor. Two years before the German invasion, she was flying airliners inside of the Soviet Union. Yevdokia was 32. She was married and had a young son. Her husband was an officer serving in the army. One day, she got a call from Marina Raskova, hero of the Soviet Union and a flight school bunkmate. The decision has been made about the formation of the female regiment, she said. She went on to tell Doc that she wanted her to be second in command and was needed in Moscow to help pick the women. The day before she left, as her young son Alexei played at her feet, she received a telegram with the words, We regret to inform you that your husband is dead. The unimaginable had happened. Would Alexei lose both parents to the war? How could she leave him now? She held her baby in her arms and decided that he would be safe with his grandparents in the Urals. Perhaps one day they would explain to him why his mother had to go away and fight a war so that he could be safe. Freedom takes great sacrifice. Doc kissed her boy goodbye one last time. She would not see him again for almost four years. So heart-wrenching. <laughs> okay, training. Even though Major Raskova had chosen Major Yevdokia Berkenshaya as her second in command, they were very different in leadership styles. The girls seemed a little more than children in many ways. Training was a very difficult time for all of us. Although most of them were basic, good raw material, with a certain standard in their various skills, they had an awful lot to learn. And don't forget, many of them had never been away from home in their lives before. Marina and I both realized that they needed a certain motherly kindness just as much as they needed to be pushed along in their training. I didn't think of myself as a mother figure. At first, I still thought of myself as a girl. But these teenagers, well, they didn't give me much choice. An army of teenagers. The girls would train 14 hours a day and also fly at night, along with bombing practice and classwork. As the weeks went on, the pilots flew more and more without instructors in their rear cockpits. But along with flight training, these women had to learn to be soldiers. Every day they would wake up at 6 a.m. and spend an hour before breakfast drilling and marching, just like the men. I know discipline is necessary in any military, but really there was never any serious problem with the girls. There was mutual respect and they tended to get on with their job without having to be ordered. A group of motivated females does not need the same sort of rigid discipline that men do. In training, the girls gained confidence with their aircrafts. They were learning the limits. During the day, they would dogfight with their instructors. It was exciting, but also incredibly dangerous. During the debriefing sessions with the instructors, including Doc, each would point out the pilot's mistakes due to stupidity or lack of concentration. Because in war, those mistakes could kill you. At roll call one morning, Marina read out the bulletins of the fighting. 
And for everybody who doesn't know what that was, because I didn't know what that was, it's basically like a roll call of where the Germans have invaded overnight in the last 24 hours. And Krasnodar had been overrun by invaders. That is where my little boy was with his grandparents. The strain was horrible. I knew what I was doing when I left and went to war, but I felt I had no choice. It broke my heart to leave him, but my duty to my country compelled me. Not a single hour of any day went by that I did not think of him. Was he alive? Had he been hurt? Was someone even at that moment being unkind to my baby? I put the thoughts to the back of my mind to concentrate on my tasks. But his face kept drifting through everything else till it looked at me in sharp focus in my mind's eye. It was not an easy time. I had to show leadership to the other girls. I had to show an example. May 17th, 1942. It was that day when Marina announced that the 586 Women's Fighter Regiment was going to the front. There was a moment of silence, and then the girls burst into cheers. <laughs> the girls broke rank, hugged each other as if this was what they had been waiting for for so long. I guess it was. It's just still kind of morbid. <laughs> yeah, to cheer for that. Lily convinced her friends to throw a big dance party, of course, in the schoolhouse to celebrate the end of training. The girls pulled their beds against the walls and had an impromptu band with women and instructors drinking vodka, dancing, and pretending it was a completely different time. Doc watched her girls dance, both proud and worried at what was to come. Then at midnight, Marina ordered the band to stop. Doc flicked the lights and stood there watching as the last man walked out. The next morning, Marina and Doc sent over the very first female regiment to war. Hurrah! As the other girls watched the first set of female pilots take off, they impatiently waited for their own mission assignments. Soon, both the 587th and 588th would be flying off to war in their PE-2s and PO-2 planes. Soon, it would be their turn. In the first three weeks of their new offensive, the Germans captured 400,000 prisoners, 1,250 tanks, and over 2,000 guns. It was bad. It was really bad. Marina appointed Doc chief of the commanding staff of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. I cried because I wanted to fly. Roskova told me that she didn't want to hear any civilian talk, only military, and that I must abide by army regulations. If I was appointed chief of the command staff, I was to obey orders and do my duty. There were no radios in the aircraft and thus no communication while the planes were in the air. A commander's job was to coordinate the entire effort so she flew very few missions. She could not be in command if she was in a plane. Now it was finally time to report to their first offensive airbase. Doc led the little PO2 planes of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment in a V formation through the sky toward the Germans and the Southern Front. It was a clear day, and Olga was tucked behind Doc's plane. They were less than 30 minutes flying time to their operational base. Then suddenly, three fighters violently bucked through their formation. The flyers scattered in all directions, terrified. The PO2s were no match to German fighters. Instinct took over, and immediately Olga put the nose of her plane straight down and dived towards the ground, trying to make herself a difficult target. Even though the PO2s were slow, they were exceedingly maneuverable, and they could fly at very low levels. These two characteristics combined made the PO2 virtually attack-proof in the day as long as they saw the enemy before they saw them. 
Olga said it happened so quickly that no one could have told you what fighter types they were. The women were convinced that it was a matter of life or death. They didn't have a single gun at that stage of the war, so they felt naked. They were just waiting to be shot at. Olga saw a birch forest ahead and flew low for a long while until she lifted above the trees and saw that the sky was clear. They landed and immediately reported to Doc. No one understood why the enemy fighters had not actually fired their guns at them. Doc looked uncomfortable. If the women of the 588th wanted to convince everyone that they were equal to the men at the front, well, they were not off to a good start. The fighter planes that had dived on them had been Russian planes sent to escort them to the airfield. The men what? Fl- yeah. <laughs> the men flying had wanted to play a little prank and give the women a scare. Doc and some of the other women recognized them, but most, like Olga, had panicked and broken formation. Many men used this occurrence as ammunition as to why the women fighters shouldn't be allowed in combat. The next day, the commander of the bomber regiment summoned Doc for an hour-long conference. Oh, He inspected the regiment without saying a word. We knew people were laughing at us over what had happened and the girls looked so serious. He took me aside and told me he didn't think we were ready for combat yet. I protested, but it was no good. He said we would be introduced into combat gradually, if everything went well. But that on our showing so far, things did not look very promising. I didn't want to tell the girls the truth. Their morale had been knocked away. So I told them they'd be kept from the main action for a week or two just like any other new unit to the front. But I knew they didn't believe me. They all knew the real reason. And after intense training at Ingalls and the anticipation of finally going to war, it was a disappointing anticlimax. Then, as if they needed any more humiliation, the girls were finally given their first home on the Southern Front. A cow shit. (laughs) Like a legit cow shed. It was a very large cow shed on a farm close to the airfield. There were no more cows in it, but the smell of the cows was still (laughs) very much present in everything. As if they were housewives, the women got to work cleaning, scrubbing, and disinfecting. But the smell never fully went away. They became the butt of yet another joke. The men laughed at them for living in the the inn of the flying cow. I mean, isn't that such a... It's such a, like a, a punch in the, the gut. You go to war and then you're immediately like, you know, no, you're not good enough. No, you're not good enough. And here's a, here's a manure that you have to sleep in. Like, here's some shit to sleep in. <laughs> I mean, it's both funny and horrible at the same time. So for the next two weeks, the women flew day and night exercises, studying German aircraft from all different angles, determined that if they ran into Germans, they would actually know they were Germans. (laughs) And on June 8th, 1942, the women were given their very first combat mission at the front. Only three aircraft were allowed to fly in the mission with the most experience of flight crews. Doc would be one of them. And it was the test they had all been waiting for. We were all very tense. Not just six who were flying the mission, but all of the other girls, too. It was the test we had been waiting for. Our intelligence told us that this target was only lightly defended, 
but we would have to navigate precisely or we could stray heavily into defended areas. The rest of the regiment stood at the end of the runway, staring, praying, listening for the popping sound of their friends' planes. Would they come back? The PO2 planes had a lot of issues. They were old and loud. The sound of their engine could be heard a long way off. But even though they were slow, they were maneuverable and could fly very low to the ground. Doc applied the sneak tactic the girls had developed, approaching the target at a height of just over 3,000 feet, turning off her engine and gliding down through the darkness toward the target. The navigator threw her arm over the edge of the cockpit, dropped two parachute flares in order to see below, and they were there. The target was beneath them. I felt a fantastic sense of achievement. I could clearly see the buildings, and I knew that if I hit the target, then the girls behind me could aim at my fires. The Germans hadn't heard me coming because of the gliding approach. But now the searchlights came on, and the flak started coming up. I didn't want to spoil my aim, so I just flew straight on through the explosions until I was right over them. The plane bucked in the blast from the explosions, but we kept flying. Then I yanked the release wire and dove away from the searchlights and steered home. The girls back at the airfield waited and waited. Finally, huge sigh of relief, they heard the first aircraft making its way back. A plane landed. Out of the darkness, they saw Doc's familiar long-legged stride. They all ran to her to hug and celebrate a first successful hit. Woo! This was definitely going to show the men what they were made of. Fifteen minutes later, the second plane landed, but there was no sign of the third. An hour passed, and the women's excitement devolved into fear. Two hours passed. Doc told the women to go to bed. She told her girls that Luba and Vera must have made a forced landing. No one believed her. She didn't really believe it herself. It wasn't until much later that they learned how their friends had died. Luba and Vera had had a navigational error and been downed behind enemy lines. They were still strapped in their cockpits, but had bled to death from wounds caused by shrapnel that tore through the plane's thin fabric. I mean, these were made of canvas and plywood. The Germans had dragged them out, taken their guns and maps, and left them there. Later, some Russian villagers had found them, bathed them, and buried them on the edge of their village. I went to bed thinking about the last images of Luba milking a cow at the inn of the flying cow and passing out warm milk to all of us, joking. Doc knew that the girls were in danger. Their fear could overtake them if something wasn't done immediately. So Doc spoke to the division headquarters and they agreed that the entire regiment of female pilots would fly out against the Germans that very night. All 20 aircraft took off and bombed a railway junction and artillery battery. In a single mission, they regained their self-confidence. And a few missions later, they were on equal footing with the men. The seasons passed from summer to autumn, and the women were flying eight to ten missions a night. Like a shuttle service or an assembly line. It was crazy. Of bombs. (laughs) Of bombs. They were so exhausted at the end of the night that they would fall out of their cockpit, wrap themselves in blankets, and just fall asleep under the wings of their airplane. The Germans came to desperately fear the sound of the distinctive PO2s popping. They would march all day, and so they would really need their sleep at night. But the women would come tearing through the darkness in a night-long harassment. We were bombing German positions every night, and none of us were ever shot down. 
So the Germans began saying that we were night witches because it seemed impossible to kill us. I love that so much. Some Nazis said that the women had been given special injections from cats to allow them to see perfectly at night. It was a psychological game and the Germans were losing. (laughs) I hated that stupid name they called us. That the villagers whispered when we walked by night witches. No one wants to be given a name by Nazi pigs. And I found it insulting that our kills were attributed to witchcraft. We had no magic, just great skill as pilots. And a land that was being ripped from us. But the sound of the PO2 also played into the anti-aircraft defenses. Because you could hear it from a long way off, and because the pilots were often following the same flight path, one after the other, the Germans started to set up a counterattack. It was July 31st, 1943, around the village of Krimskaya. Yeah, sounds right. Pardon, pardon my Russian, or lack thereof. The German troops lay in dugouts, hoping the night witches would leave them be. But there it was, the sound of the pop-pop-popping of the bomber's engines. As the first pilot dropped her bombs, suddenly searchlights beamed up to catch her plane in an intense, blinding light. Then, pop-pop-pop, the machine guns were behind her. What? It was the sound of a German night fighter. It was also the very first time the enemy had ever coordinated searchlights and night fighters against the night witches in an attack. Nadia, who narrowly escaped the fighter, told the girls, I couldn't believe what was happening. We had never come against fighters before. One of the girls' wings caught fire, and soon the whole aircraft went up in flames. It was horrible watching the little airplane carrying two dear friends just floating to the earth in a ball of flames. By the time the fourth plane was burning towards the ground, the rest of the pilots had dived out of formation to save themselves. Doc watched the slaughter from the airfield, her field glasses falling from her face as her girls fell from the sky. We carried no parachutes at that time. They were all burning so furiously, so quickly, that we knew that they could never even make a crash landing and walk away from it. Words can't express the emotions you feel at a time like that. The bonds of friendship we all had were so strong. We'd been through so much together. We developed this strength of friendship which girls in peacetime just never get a chance to experience. It's so intense. And on the ground we just had to stand there and watch them die in that way. Nadia was the first aircraft to return. She landed, slowly getting herself out of the cockpit as Doc and the others crowded around her. Mission accomplished, she whispered softly. It's all right, Nadia. We saw everything. Doc ordered the girls to stand down for the night. They reluctantly went back to the bunkers to see the eight beds of the friends they had lost only moments ago. For three days, the beds remained exactly how their friends had left them. A memorial of necklaces, photographs of family, sisters, a diary, songs written in children's handwriting. Now, once again, the women had to find a way to overcome the Nazi offense. Their tactics would change, but the game would continue, but not without the bitter memory of what could happen if they weren't careful. By January 4th, the Russian winter was hitting with brutal force. The Allies finally made progress because the Germans were operating at a 50% decrease in their fighting force and had little to no manpower or supplies left. 
They were eating the very last of their horses and running out of ammunition. Gross. Also, gross. (laughs) But yeah, at the front, soldiers were unable to even bury their dead due to the solid frozen ground and deep snowdrifts. Otto Skorzeny writes, They made a gruesome sight. Arms and legs oddly twisted in the death struggle were frozen in agony forever. We had to break the joints of our dead friends to give them a decent burial, but we could never close their eyes. If they froze staring at the Russian sky, that's how we buried them. Oh my gosh, that is a vivid picture. (laughs) I know, it's just, oh, very grotesque. The cold was almost as prolific in killing the Nazis as the Russian pilots were, because temperatures were regularly negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. That's insane. My body doesn't understand what that means. Mm -hmm. Over 130,000 Nazis died in their sleep or were frostbitten and sent home due to amputation during this winter phase. So it was like, it was a very effective military tool, the Russian (laughs) winter. Yeah, the winter. Yeah. Yeah. The Soviets faced some of the same conditions, but were far better equipped to handle their own winters. With temperatures well below freezing, the women depended on one stove in their cow in that they would move with them from airfield to airfield. They would sleep in full uniform, huddled under blankets and taking turns on stove watch to make sure the stove burned all night because if it went out, they could die. Yeah. The cold and constant hunger did not help the pilots concentration, but they still managed to succeed against the Nazis again and again. A heavy snow was falling and Doc and her women were settling down after a long night of flying. Then one of the girls rushed into the barracks and stopped suddenly. Everyone turned to her, waiting for something to happen. She was almost speechless, and then finally muttered, Major Ruskova is dead. There was a wave that spread over the room. Doc felt as though she had been punched in the gut. Marina? Marina Ruskova? The legend? Her friend? She quickly went outside to hide her anxiety from her regiment. The tears in her eyes immediately stung from the cold. She thought, what now? She felt the weight of the entire female combat mission on her shoulders. Her and Marina had built it together, and now she was alone. But really, she wasn't. She had her regiment to care for, to lead. She marched back into the barracks where the women were crying from the news. She could not let the morale slip. She told the women that they were to live on, that they would rally and become a unifying force for their country the way that Marina had called them to be. It would be a long road ahead, but Doc had to ensure that Marina's work was not in vain. There was news coming through from the occupied territories like Leningrad that hundreds of thousands of civilians were dying of starvation not to mention the rape and other atrocities that the Germans used daily as military weapons among civilians. The Ukraine, also known as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, was also occupied by the Germans, which meant all of that bread, farmland, and whatnot was under siege and was unavailable to feed the Russian people. Even though air crews were given some priority on rations, they often had to go on one meal a day, and often that was soup and black bread. If only the Germans had realized how much that sort of news helped us in our determination to beat them. I used to fly across our sector and look down at the fields and rivers. I had this overwhelming feeling that this was ours. These people were violating it. And we must kill them and throw them out. I love that determination. I know. She's such a badass. (laughs) 
As the snow melted, it brought a new set of problems that Doc had to address. The fields became so muddy that the planes could not take off, and the fuel trucks could not drive to the planes to refuel, which, you know, they were doing like eight to ten times a night. Mm -hmm. A bunch of the mechanics took apart log fences and laid them down to make log runways to get to and from the planes. Wow. The flight crews would grab the wings of the plane and push it to the runway while the pilot revved the engine, then let go just as the plane pushed off. When they landed, the crew had to push the planes through the mud back to the runway while the pilot received orders on the next mission. And then the mechanics had to carry three tons of bombs (laughs) and fuel to every plane every night because the trucks could not make it through the mud. I mean... Like, talk about will not be defeated, you know? Yeah, but, like, but, these but, women but, were like... <laughs> but also, it's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just this girl, like, carrying a bomb. I'm just gonna carry this bomb. And fuel. Like, that seems safe. Yeah, right. Like, trudging through the mud. <laughs> Yikes. There is an opinion about women in combat. That a woman stops being a woman after bombing, destroying, and killing. That she becomes crude and tough. This is not true. We all remained kind, compassionate, and loving. We became even more womanly, more caring for our children, our parents, and our land. The men's air regiments were frequently based on the same airfield, and the women would smear their lips with lipstick before they arrived. Major Doc and the senior officers ordered them to wipe it off only if there was an inspection by a male officer. Under their flying helmets were white silk helmets dyed with herbs and berries and a blaze of different beautiful colors. The young daughters of the houses where they often stayed in would steal into their rooms at night and listen wide-eyed to these women female pilot stories. Ugh, I mean, they're like, I would definitely be obsessed with them <laughs> if I was a girl in that time. I mean, I'm obsessed with them now. I mean, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one night, there was a yelping at the door of one of the bunkers. When they opened the door to sub-zero wind and snow, a wolf cub tumbled inside. The women picked him up and lay him next to the hot stove. They fed him black bread and chocolate, and he curled up and fell asleep. Then, that night, there was a hideous wailing outside the bunker. The cub's mother had come to claim him. Oh, but just for a minute, you want to just snuggle with a wolf cub. (laughs) Also... Chocolate wolf cub? I know, right? Isn't like, that isn't that bad, bad, for, bad for animals? <laughs> it wasn't only animals who the women brought in. One morning near a village that had been obliterated, the women were walking through the rubble, and a child, much like a frightened wild animal, ran away from them suddenly, tripping and falling on the ground. They ran to help, picking him up, a frail, ragged creature with long blonde hair. It turned out it was a little boy, about eight years old, although he was very small due to malnutrition. They talked to him for about a half hour, and when he realized that they were not Germans, he began to relax. They fed him a hot meal, which he ate so quickly, scooping it up with his hands. They boiled water and gave him a bath, wrapped him in a blanket to keep him warm, burned his clothes and sewed new ones for him. And because winter was coming, they knew they couldn't send him back out in the cold, so the regiment adopted him. Several of us were married with children of our own from whom we'd been separated for for a very long time. It was bittersweet in many ways. It was delightful to have a young child to give our love to, but also a constant reminder of our own children, too. Misha, that's his name, or at least what they called him, 
had no education. So when the girls were off duty, they taught him to read and write. He became fascinated by military affairs. And when they flew missions, he would stand at the end of the runway, anxiously count them one by one as they returned. Several women died during his tenure, and that took a toll on him. As it became clear that the war would end within a year, it was time to send Misha to military school. He stood beside the truck, saluting the women, and they ran to him, kissing him. He pressed his nose to the window of the truck and waved to them until the truck disappeared out of sight. They never saw him again. It was January 1943, and the 588th Night Bomber Regiment had been flying in combat now for eight months. The women wore it in the circles under their eyes and the wrinkles in their foreheads. It was not just the combat that wore on them. The male chauvinism and constant strain to prove their worth had hurt them more deeply than they would admit, honestly. But now, their record of missions spoke for itself. They were featured in many magazines and newspapers, and well-known throughout their country. The newspaper stories were all very nice, of course, but what they craved was some sign from the men that they were recognized and respected as equals. Yeah, seriously. Doc burst open the bunker door excitedly, telling the women to come outside. She lined them up as General Popoff carried under his arm a banner. He stood before Doc and read from a piece of paper in his hand. By order of the Supreme Soviet and in recognition of your outstanding service to our country, he listed the many, many missions, the damage they've done, and their devotion. I am ordered to announce that the 588th Women Night Bomber Regiment will from today be given the title of the 46th Guards Regiment. It was a dream. Woohoo! A complete surprise. To be awarded the title of a Guards Regiment was the greatest collective honor they could have achieved. The girls, who had all been standing at attention, broke form and screamed in celebration. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) He handed the banner to Major Doc and she tied it to a pole. She came to attention and saluted the general and then knelt in the snow, burying her face in the banner and kissing the flag. She cried silently in pride for her girls, but in anguish for her country and deep longing for her husband and child. Then she recited the oath as all the others did. They were the first regiment in their division to receive this honor and the first women's regiment to ever achieve it. Ooh, I got goosebumps. That night, they had the biggest, wildest party of their career. Uh, yeah. As they deserved. (laughs) The 588th Night Bomber Regiment was now in the North Caucasus, helping to stop the German movement south towards the Caspian and the vital Russian oil fields around Baku. On one airfield where they were stationed, uh, there were two regiments, one male and one female. They had the same missions, same aircraft, same targets. The female regiment performed better and made more combat missions each night than the male regiment. The male pilots were always smoking and chatting, but the female pilots would have supper in their cockpits, so they were ready to take off immediately upon command. One of the German prisoners said, When the women started bombing our trenches, we had a number of radio stations warning all the troops, Attention, attention, the ladies are in the air. Stay in your shelter. I love that. (laughs) The night witches were assigned to different air bases, depending on where the fighting was heaviest. Their regiment was the favorite of many air base commanders. Two even fought over the girls. Marshal of the Air Force said, give me back my female regiment. And then the commander of the 8th Air Division was like, no, I'm keeping them, but I'll give you two male regiments instead. When they finally made it back to the Marshal's command, they were given the Gold Star, Heroes of the Soviet Union. The Doc's leadership was more affectionate mother than stern commander. There was never any loss of formal discipline. 
When senior male officers would visit, they would conform to the rule book and try to remember to call each other by their official ranks. But otherwise, they continued on a first-name basis. In the spring of 1943, one of Doc's number one pilots was flying her 500th mission. 500 missions, that's insane. Doc made it her mission to commemorate this achievement. She didn't have the ingredients to make a cake, but she was resourceful. She presented her pilot with a huge wrapped box, and after tearing through layers and layers of paper, she found a giant watermelon with the image of a PO2 carved in its side. (laughs) The women laughed uncontrollably while she cut it up like birthday cake and served everybody a slice. Isn't that great? That's amazing. Yeah. That's some Pinterest shit right there. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Celebrating survival always made the girls think about their loved ones. No one understood how Doc managed to plan operations, brief her squadron commanders, spend day in and day out listening to the problems of her fellow flyers while dealing with the inner turmoil of her own personal struggles. Her son had been sent away with his grandmother. The town they were in had been run over by Germans and Doc didn't know whether her mother or son were alive. Of course, it was not easy. I had not gone to war and left my child behind because I did not love him. I had done it because I did love him, and I felt that I could do something to help beat the Germans. I cannot properly describe the feelings that one has when one's own child is not only separated but in control of the hated enemy. Every time we heard stories of the atrocities the invaders were doing and committing in occupied territories, well... I can only say that I felt weak and sick. But when you are a commander, you must not let your feelings show too much. The girls used to say, who sleeps less than anyone in the regiment? The chief of staff. It was a great strain to be of this rank and to serve as commander. As a consequence, she began fainting. She never slept more than three hours a night, and sometimes not at all. Doc's secret fear was of her girls being captured and tortured. The Germans tortured everyone they captured during the war, but none more than the female fighter pilots that caused them so much grief. The girls were more terrified of being captured, raped, beaten, and tortured than they were of dying. Ugh. The 588th had been supporting the ground troops working to liberate Krasnodar. I can only imagine what it was like as a mother to bomb the city where your son and mother were taken captive. Finally, the Germans had withdrawn. Doc and several women drove into town the day after. The town was badly damaged. Smoke still hung in the air. Doc and the girls picked through rubble where Doc had last seen her mother and son living. Her face full of anxiety and dread at what she might find. They turned a corner, and a few hundred yards away was a small boy, about six years old. He was very thin and wore a jacket several sizes too big. When he raised his head at the sound of the women, Doc gasped. She started running as fast as she could towards him, stumbling, tripping, calling out his name. He stood still unable to believe what was happening, and then he started running towards her. She swept him off his feet, hugging him so hard. The women all gathered, throwing their arms around them, and they all stood there sobbing in the middle of this desolate city. She got to see him and her mother for two days before the regiment had to move to a new airfield. She promised him the war would be over soon and that she would be back. The pain of separation was so intense as she left him again. But man, 
to know that your son and mom, that they're safe, like after so long. (sighs) I can't imagine. Maybe she slept for the first time. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. In a few months time, the Russians fought the most crucial battle of Kursk, which decided the fate of Doc's family and every member of the air regiment. Because if Hitler took Kursk, it would change the entire situation on the Eastern Front and make it possible for him to launch a new offensive at Moscow, rather than going back home. The battle raged on the ground with hundreds of tanks fighting and burning. The sky was full of aircraft with over 4,000 planes on each side, within a 12 by like 30 mile area. This was a sight you could not forget. When it ended, the Germans had failed. The Nazis were not yet defeated, but they suffered losses in men and equipment that made it impossible for them to recover. The Night Witch's last flight took place on May 4th, 1945, when Doc led the brave female pilots to fly over 17 and 18 missions in a row. Remember, the norm was 10. Their bombs reached within 37 miles of Berlin, decimating the remaining German front lines. Three days later, Germany officially surrendered. May 1st, 1945, the night bombers were at an airfield near Berlin. A mechanic burst through the farmhouse door in the middle of the night saying, Victory, girls! Victory! The war is over! That night, they had flown their last mission of the war. They raided their planes for rockets and flares and sent fireworks into the sky. (laughs) They drank vodka from tin cups and danced. Some of them wept. Some just watched the sunrise over a very quiet sky. Doc watched her girls, wishing Marina was able to see the strong, brave soldiers that she fought so hard to create. They had done it. They made girls into elite pilots. They obliterated the enemy from their homeland. The Night Witches became legends of World War II. It was time for Doc to go home. <laughs> 